Welcome back to the Policy Corner podcast series. It's been a while, sorry for that. But today, finally, we're back. And how we're back. Today, we are bringing you the story of Mulam Hendawi, a journalist from Aleppo, Syria. We talk about that little moment at the beginning of the Syrian revolution that often gets forgotten, when people were still hoping for a free Syria, when they were gathering in the street to protest and voice their anger. Mulham takes us with him on the streets of Aleppo to the first protests, through Russian airstrikes and the day he said goodbye to his family and left Syria. It's quite the story, so let's jump right in. My name is Mulham Hendawi. Uh, I'm a Syrian journalist. Uh, I live now in France. Uh, one of the nicest things happened that the second day I arrived here, they were like... Uh, protest for climate change it was the first protest i i participated in without being scared and yeah man as a syrian i'm not i'm not used to that <laughs> that's really really different from what i uh, experienced before in syria that meant that uh, you don't know if you're going back home you might be killed you might be detained you might be tortured you might be lost It was my story. It was the story of a person had a dream about a different Syria. And you just follow the dream, how it started, how it went, and how it ended. And this is my opinion about it. There was a moment in Syria before it became a synonym for death and destruction when people had the feeling of waking up. The feeling that now, finally, things would change for the better. That things would change at all, even a little bit. Something that had seemed impossible for decades. With all the reporting about death and destruction, this moment often gets lost when we talk about the Syrian revolution and the war. This piece is a document of that short moment and what happened after. Our story starts with three high school kids doing what they did all of the time. Mulam and two of his friends were sitting in a park close to his family's apartment in Aleppo. They would usually go there after classes, sit under the old trees next to the street vendors that were selling snacks and fruit, talk about girls and school, and listen to music. <laughs> Like yes, in Aleppo we had some parks and they were like really elegant and they were being taken care of. No, but this one was really close to our houses, really shitty. You don't see like a lot of green grass. It's not really common to you to sit because it's it's ugly. Yeah, we used to go to this to this park before. It was like something we did uh, after our classes or so. So our uh, third friend he would smoke and we would think so guilty about it just to sit with him while smoking we were very polite and you know um, like really good good boys so he would smoke and we would just like look uh, at him and um, listen to some music (laughs) 
One day in the summer of 2011, they were hanging out at their spot like they usually did. But that day, something unusual happened. Something happened that was playing out all over Syria and that would eventually provoke a government crackdown, which provoked a revolution, which turned into all-out war and ultimately cost half a million lives. But in order to really understand the gravity of what happened, we need to take a 10-minute stroll from this small park to the apartment where Mulham's family used to live. One great thing about the Middle East is the low rent. You can get a huge apartment for next to nothing. So, although Mulham's family didn't have a lot of money, they lived in a big apartment. So big, it had three separate doors to the staircase. It had high ceilings, a big kitchen, and a sunny balcony. In late 2010, the Arab world around Mulham, his friends, and his family started to come apart. First, it was Ben Ali in Tunisia who fell. Soon, the regimes in Egypt and Libya started crumbling. The chaos, the wounded Gaddafi, clearly alive, being manhandled by the crowd, shoved into the back of a But outside of his family home, Mulham wouldn't talk to anyone about what was happening. You say nothing because you are interested in nothing and because the the social uh, way of thinking is like we won't say or demand anything so we won't get fucked so the fathers uh, uh, taught this or like somehow transferred this kind of feelings to their to their next generation so nobody in syria was really demanding on talking or or even saying i'm not really happy because being not being happy is suspicious you cannot talk freely about people asking for freedom the word freedom wasn't really something you would like to talk about in a country like Syria. But at the same time, everybody's finishing and going home and putting on TV uh, on Al Jazeera, for instance, or Arabia or, or BBC Arabic to see what's happening in Tunisia, uh, Egypt, uh, Yemen and in other countries. Even when you're watching the news with your father, your father would say, be careful, son. Be careful to talk about this to anyone. Be careful to tell someone that we watch Al Jazeera in our house. So somehow, you don't really ask why. You don't really ask why I shouldn't talk to someone. The regime's spies were everywhere. They were teachers in schools, neighbors, friends, and even family members. In school, professors would make fun of protesters in the Arab world for asking for something as absurd as freedom. Actually, Mulham says, that was what got him thinking about these new ideas of freedom and dignity in the first place. And I had a philosophy teacher, actually, and people were just like asking this philosophy teacher just to give them like their life advice. And he said, go to uh, an empty place and shout as much as you can. Just like say, ah, and shout, get out your anger. And I kept this idea in my head. I never tried it. It, I never had the chance to do that. I only had a pillow in my room and just like I screamed to the, like I put the pillow on my face and screamed, but it didn't feel anything. He actually got another chance to try out his teacher's advice, but we'll get to that in a moment. Back then, Mulam had heard about the protests in neighboring countries, but he could never imagine a protest taking place in Syria. But in March 2011, a group of school kids had written slogans they had seen on TV on their school's walls. 
the regime's reaction was brutal. One of the regime's ten different security services took the children and tortured them for weeks. They broke their fingers and they pulled out their nails. Protests started in Daraa, soon after in Homs, Idlib, Hama, and the first protesters were killed by bullets. It was the beginning of the Syrian revolution. But for Mulham, the revolution began in a much subtler way, with some simple words spoken by a friend, words that were whispered in all of Syria. Mulham and his friends were sitting under the old trees at their spot in the little park in Aleppo. Yeah, like we were free sitting on a, on this like wooden uh, chair in, in the in the park, and one of them started talking, and yeah. It was also like coming out of the closet, even between the three of us. Like we knew each other since a long time, but we don't know really politically who we are. So the bravest one just uh, starts, like, "What do you think of what's happening?" And it's like he said, "I don't know. Freedom, man. We deserve it. The people uh, wanting something, and I think we deserve some kind of change. It's more than this. It's more than just a change. It's like." We deserve to be in a in a modern democratic country. So at that time there were no music. There were only us three of us talking. And, and the first one who started the conversation, he said, "We're going to a protest next week. You should come, both of you." One week later, three people were killed in a neighborhood called Al Sahur in the east of Aleppo, the poorest part of the city. Mullah and his friends decided to go to the funeral procession. He told his parents. He would go see a movie with his friends. They took a bus and then another bus, so it actually took them a while to get there. Uh, we were so scared um, because the idea was so, you know, uh, tempting. And before, before that, like you, you never have the strength. You need someone to take your hand. You need someone to tell you, like, let's do this. And. Yeah, we went. We went to this protest. So, all of your frustration, all of your fears, uh, what do you believe it should happen? It's all. It's all factors to, to to push you to go to this protest, knowing that you may not come back, and knowing you may be a big disappointment for your family, or not just disappointment because. Of course, they love you and they scared for you and they want the best for you. But at the same time, you being in jail or being killed in a protest will affect the whole family. They will be all under the regime's spots after. And like, yeah, this is something back then you don't need to think about because if you thought about it, you will never do it. That protest wasn't just a protest against the regime; it was also um, the peril, maybe. So. They they had those bodies with them, and they were like, uh, we just went to to that neighborhood. It was really dark and really scary, and you don't know like the people were so scary for us with like big mustaches and I don't know like they were like really different from 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 the people I hang out usually, and uh, we saw the bodies, we saw like people on stretchers, let's say, and. It struck me like, yeah, it, it's real. There's something is happening, and I remember the first time someone in in, in the protest said, "Allahu Akbar." 
and it had it had a different meaning. It wasn't uh, it wasn't religious, but in the public mind, when when you are misjusticed and you are feeling pain and you are feeling anger at the same time, you go to the high power, or you just out of a sudden you just need to say, "I'm angry and I want justice." And in this, in this, this means Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar means like God is stronger, or like in a way you are believing in 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 the uh, in the like concept of justice in this life. Like no matter how shitty, powerful uh, dictators can do to us, but God is bigger and more more powerful. And I remember when after Allahu Akbar, everybody was shouting everybody was angry everybody was expressing expressing their feelings and in a way that changed the the scene of of the dead people being buried it turned to be a very huge protest after and after that the the word freedom came you don't know like you don't know the feeling i can i don't really think i can really express it but I was shouting Hariyah or freedom till I had no voice and I was crying. And I witnessed what my philosophy teacher told me a year ago just to shout as, as, as high as I can. And I did. I was walking alone in the, like in the big march, really dark, uh, but among people I started feeling safe with. I don't know them, but I started feeling safe. I started feeling that... All of those people next to me believe in freedom. All of those people next to me, they know the risk they are taking just to be here. And they are here anyway. So I think we have something in common. Uh, as as in all Syrian uh, protests back then, uh, there will be anger because of the regime. There will be shouting of freedom. And there will be some kind of small songs. So... One of a very, very uh, <laughs> famous song. It's like uh, "Curse Your Soul, Hafiz al-Assad," uh, and they were like saying it in, in a very uh, poetic and uh, tunable way. So it's like a small, a small uh, jingle or, or song. You know, it was so funny. But at the same time, you're cursing the the soul of the immortal leader, Hafiz al-Assad. It gives you like like I don't know some kind of a pleasure and it was so fun uh, the fun started like it, it turned to be like something musical we are singing we are protesting we are like fuck with the system and like you are being in a revolution in the street in a very dark street in a very bad neighborhood and the secret service just came and yeah I, I, I think I just woke up in the middle of that when people started saying like uh, Al-Aman is here. Al-Aman means like the, the secret service. And it just like, uh, it strike me like, oh my God, I could, uh, I'm fucked now. I don't know what to do. Mulham was lucky. The people around him were experienced protesters and they helped Mulham and his friends out. The secret service had come close. They were carrying guns and shooting tear gas. But the protesters took to the sides of the street and started kicking the metal gates in front of the closed shops. So each one of those guys will go to one of those metal things and just start kicking it. 
uh, like maybe 50 shops on, on the right and the left. When you do that, it gives a very scary sound uh, as lightning, as very powerful lightning. So I was scared as shit because I didn't experience that before. I didn't know what's happening. They were just scaring the, the Secret Service because they had no guns. They had nothing to, 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 to fight for. They just had the, the power of the sound. Mulham made his way back to a relative's place where his family was having a dinner party. His sister was there too. And uh, yeah, my sister just like looked at me and like she was smiling. She said, yeah, your, your trouser is full of mud and dirt. Like you were in a protest, right? I said, yes. And like, yeah, I was revealing this big secret to my sister. It was a very emotional moment. And yeah, she was the only one knowing back then. Mulam's sister went to protest herself and she drew signs for the demonstrations in her room. At one point, she asked Mulham to carry a bag full of these signs down the street to give to someone he had never met before and he never met after. If he had been caught, he would have been killed. You go to the protests, you never take it home with you, is what he says. The protests in Aleppo kept on going and the violence continued to escalate. In mid-May 2012, Mulham went to join a protest at Aleppo University. The UN had announced that they would send observers, so people were excited. Just this once, the regime might show some restraint. And the regime did. That is, until the UN left. So this is the square of Aleppo University. Uh, as you see, it's a sunny day, uh, late spring. And... Uh, it's a beautiful place where you can see a lot of green sites. Thousands of people now are gathering in, in this square. It was like a dream. Uh, we knew that the, the international observers are coming to witness what's happening on the demonstrations. And this square is important because it's a point where Eastern and Western Aleppo can meet in the middle. So you can see thousands of people and they came from all over the world. From, from all over the city and you can see now the car of the UN the white car of UN it's not white anymore because they wrote on it they danced on it and as you can see people are really happy they are dancing they cannot believe what's happening they are saying their opinions in like in a free way and this is what the regime wanted the observers to see but after they moved we were as usual uh, we were facing like uh, violence. Uh, the the secret police, uh, the people uh, supporting Al-Assad, like like followed us in, into those streets with with knives. Uh, I don't know what kind of uh, weapons also, because we were just running. We were not looking back, and it didn't last long. But maybe it was the beginning of a lot and a lot of demonstrations in Aleppo University. And it was a victory actually in the city because after a while the regime had to close the university which was something really huge and they put a, a, like a very funny uh, uh, thing on the doors they said it's closed for, for instructions and that was we, 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 we uh, considered as a victory as our victory because it was the only uh, peaceful uh, demonstration uh, led to something eventually in, in, in Aleppo. For once, Mullah and his friends felt like they had won. 
But, of course, closing down a university is not what the revolution in Syria was about. Our ideal thing would be, and we always dream of it, in Aleppo we had one of the biggest squares in Syria. It's called Saadallah al-Jabri Square. Uh, our dream was to conquer this square and to have this one of the, like, uh, one million people uh, just protesting against the regime and all the uh, international media to, to see it, to observe it. Because we believed somehow in what happened in Tahrir Square in, uh, in Egypt, in Cairo. Our hope was two uh, enormous protests in Aleppo and Damascus for a week and the regime will, will, will go down. Uh, we had the media, we had the numbers, we didn't have power to do it. People tried to conquer Saadullah al-Jawri uh, square many, many times, and many people died trying to reach it. Uh, we never succeed. After the protest at Aleppo University, Mulham was added to a messenger group where people would exchange news on ongoing protests, the location of police and security services, and coordinate on upcoming events. But... Just as everyday life in Syria, these groups were infested with regime spies. Oftentimes, Mulham would receive text messages saying, cancel, cancel, don't go, don't go, because the security service had been following the conversations and was already waiting for them. The situation was deteriorating. One day, Mulham was walking in the streets of Aleppo when he saw a Russian plane called Sukhoi, coming towards him. And the name by itself, it was so scary for us. I don't know, but it has like the tone of the say of the, of the word Sukhoi is very scary, for, even now for me. And you will see this uh, Air Force thing. It's like it's, it's coming down, down, down. And it would do like something like, uh, like, like this, I don't know, like a U letter, and she will go down, and she will airstrike something, and she will go up again, it will go up again and continue. And yeah, after a while, you hear the voice, you hear the sound, sorry, and uh, yeah, like a few seconds after, you see like a very big ball of smoke is coming out, and you see like, oh, uh, like... Uh, two kilometers away from me, there were like now maybe ten people died. And, and, and you saw the act, you 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 saw the smoke. Maybe you 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 smelled it, and that was very shocking because people were f being fought by 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 airstrikes, and it's crazy. Like it's really crazy. Up to that point. Mulham hadn't been drafted into the army because he was a student. But the regime no longer cared. They started recruiting anyone who was able to hold a gun. Determined not to join the killing around him, in late 2012, Mulham left Aleppo for his uncle's house close to Damascus. At the time, he had started to smoke, a big no-go in his conservative family. So... Eventually, like, my mom will, like, every now and then I will give her an excuse. Like, I'm just going outside to, to have some uh, fresh air. Like, she said, like, eventually she said, 
I know that you're secretly smoking. I will just bring you the, the, the bag of tobacco. Please don't leave. But even though Mulham had escaped being drafted into the Syrian army, staying in his uncle's house was no solution. Eventually, his big brother, who was working in the Emirates, managed to get him a visa. He said goodbye to his mom and dad and to his little brother in Syria. He did not know when or if he'd see them again. Mom and dad, they were like really pushing me and they were, uh, they were not giving any, any space for any emotions because if they started to get emotional, they will, we will not go through this. So my mom was being super busy with like uh, preparing my bag. She wasn't looking uh, in my face all the time. She was like being busy. And my dad wasn't staying with us at that time. So I just went to say goodbye at at, uh, at his family house. I said goodbye to my grandfather who had Alzheimer. He didn't remember me anyway, but we said the last goodbye. His uncle had family over the Turkish border in Latakia. Mulham only took one suitcase. His mom had packed his clothes, she gave him fresh bedsheets and a piece of the famous soap manufactured in Aleppo. His clothes smelled of the soap, clean and well taken care of, for six months. So they took his uncle's car and off they went. Actually, I had a very shitty Nokia phone back then. and uh, I didn't know, like it was all... It's, it was very sudden. And the last time I left Damascus, I didn't know it was the last time. So I prepared a message and I was preparing to send it to all, saying goodbye to all of my friends in Syria. And when I pressed send uh, on my phone, it was uh, an area out of coverage. So the message wasn't sent. And I wasn't able to say goodbye to all the people I wanted. Uh, yeah. It became a crazy odyssey for Mulham. He lived in the Emirates for a while, then he moved to Egypt, where we actually lived together for some time, and then he finally made it to Paris. Telling me his story, he says, he feels like he's only giving me little spotlights into what has actually happened. The only solid thing, like, uh, we all lost. I lost eight years uh, apart from my best friend. I lost eight years apart of, uh, of my mom and dad. Yeah. To be honest, I still don't have a passport. I still don't, don't have a bank account. I had my first health insurance in life three weeks ago. But I have a window of hope now. Like, um, I'm being free. Like, it was, it was a shock when I came to Charles de Gaulle Airport. After the angry man stabbed my uh, lycée passé because I don't have a passport. Oh, God. Uh, and I went out and uh, I saw two gay people kissing. And it shocked me. I just wanted to hug them. I said, oh, my God, you are free people. You're living as free. And it's a childish thing, but we never experienced that. Like, I never felt free, completely free before I came to Paris. 26 years of non-freedom. It was only something I, I would imagine or dream of. For Syria, he says, he has little hope. But he has hope for the Syrian people all over the world. And the important things, music and food, 
they live on. Yeah, now I cannot think a lot about Syria, but whenever I have a gathering in my place or inviting people and cooking, cooking this like my signature Syrian dish, and people are like, oh my god, this is so amazing! It's like, yes, this is part of the Syria where part of Syria was still living. As long as I'm living, this dish will be still cooked. We still have our music. Uh, and for me, music and food is like, I don't know, best thing that Syria invented, in my opinion. Special thanks to Mohan for sharing his story. Intro music by Nish with Hella Beats. See you next time.